That's right. So, what words of wisdom? Well, no, I got one more question before <laughs> that one. <laughs> so, what do you see people do that destroys the value of their deal? Like when they're trying to go to market, like they think they're being smart by saving pennies, but they're losing real dollars on the valuation. Well, I guess it depends on what kind of property it is, what kind of market you're in. Um, As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. And welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the pleasure of having Reed Bennett with me today. Reed, how are things in the Chicago area? They're fantastic today. Yeah? Yeah. Weather's nice. I don't know whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, or Saturday, or Sunday anymore, but it's, it's all good around here. It's all good around here. Do me a favor and let the listeners know how they can get in contact with you. Sure. Uh, you can reach me anytime on uh, my email is reed.bennett at svn.com. That's Sam Victor Nancy. You can also call me on my cell, 773-251-7342. Or you can look me up on LinkedIn. I love when people give out their cell phone numbers. They never know what they're getting into. It's good. My office number forwards to my cell number, so I might as well give out my cell number. Without question. Never want to miss a call. You've got a really diverse background from my perspective. Do me a favor and spend the next few minutes talking a little bit about your background and what you've been working on most recently. How far back do you want me to go? We can go back... I really enjoyed the story that you told about going through the last recession. So if you're willing to go back that far, I'd love to hear people. All right. Well, the, the last recession um, prior to, so, you know, starting in 2000, beginning of 2008, uh, we actually put our first deal together with a client of ours. Um, I have a client that, uh, had sold a number of deals for and two in the past. And uh, we had this uh, 144 unit deal under contract and he actually lost his main whale investor that invested with him. He was going to back out of the deal. We said, wait a minute, what do you, what do you need? Um, what do you need in order to complete the deal? And I'll never forget. It was, it was a million five sixty uh was the number so just uh, between a few of us we, we helped to raise the money and became partners with them on the deal um we closed on that deal may of 2015 or i mean 2008 so that was great timing right before the recession hit um you know in the interim we were trying to uh keep the doors open right after that um because the deal volume dropped like 83%, almost exactly what it's done so far uh, this year uh, with what's going on. 
And um, we were just happy to have this investment because it continued to grow and there was a five year deal. We all got out and uh, doubled our money. And uh, you know, that's not a home run, but it's a pretty good investment. Uh, you know, when you're just, when you're talking about multifamily deals and especially what's going on uh, in the world today. So um, I don't know if you want me to talk more about that particular deal or if you want to continue about the brokerage end of, of what we were doing or what do you think is most pertinent? So I like that you, you have the brokerage piece, but you also have actively invested. And so was there a big takeaway or lesson learned in doing that first deal back then? Well, I mean, the, the big takeaway from that one for me was once, um, you know, oftentimes when we're selling a transaction, the, the buyer is going to, to come up with a number of complaints and hurdles and, you know, that we have to, you know, either help them get along with or, um, you know, try to rectify. Well, well, this one, once it got to a point where he was, you know, he was discussing things that he didn't like about the deal. And I said, you know, look, I'm with you on this one. I'm investing my money into it. I'm investing. My, my mother was a, uh, a preschool teacher. She inherited a small sum of money and we put all that money into the deal. I said, I'm with you on it. So if you don't like this particular aspect about how the joists are hanging in the units, um, let, we're out of it. And then he's, oh, no, it, it's, not, it's not that big of a deal. We can, we can close on it. So it kind of I went from being a broker, which, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, the buyers think that the brokers are just trying to get a deal done. They're doing anything they can do. They're trying to sweep things under the rug. Maybe I, I don't know uh, what, what the perception is, but that's uh, that's one that I catch from from some of the buyers we deal with that have happened to them in the past from previous brokers. But once I said I'm involved, you know, I believe in this deal so much, I'll invest my money and my mom's money into it. The whole the tables kind of you know turned around there, and it was just a totally different relationship. Uh, you know, partnering with a client than just simply selling it for a, a commission. So that takes a little bit of courage. Why, what made you believe in the deal so much that you were willing to put your mom's money in? <laughs> well, that, that particular deal, it was, it was 144 units. It was 18 buildings and it was uh, by a merchant builder. So he had owned it since he built it. And he tried in 2006 or 2007 to condo convert uh, one of the, so he started with one building to test it and took one of the 18, well, I'm trying to think of how many units there were. In building number 18, I think it was, uh, he added about $3,000 a unit. I mean, it wasn't a big conversion because it was a newer product. It was built in the 90s and um, he's trying to sell it, you know, 12 years later as a condo. He updated all the appliances. Uh, he updated the, you know, a lot of the hardware throughout the unit and that was about it. And so he spent maybe $3,000, $3,500 a unit, found that the market in that particular, it was a tertiary market, found that it was pretty soft for selling condos, even in the heyday of 2007. Um, and so 
he just put them back on the market as rentals and got about $150 more uh, per unit for building 18. And so I was thinking, all right, if you're only putting $3,000 to $3,500 a unit into each one and you do it for the rest of the units in the, in the property and you get a $100 to $150 pop for $3,000, you just added significant value um, for 350 or so grand. Um, so I, I just knew if you continued along with it, and that's what this our client uh, wanted to do. He wanted to continue along with um, with the renovations, and I knew that was going to add about two million dollars in value to the property, which would, you know, along with the appreciation, uh, just typical appreciation from increased rents, was going to be a a pretty decent deal. So. Did he think he was calling your bluff or something when he said, if you believe so much in the deal, invest in it or what? You know, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, uh, sometimes I just get a laundry list uh, or litany of, ex of, of ex you know, here's what's wrong with this property. I, I get it all the time from the buyers. Look, look it's X, Y, Z, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F is all wrong with this thing. And, you know, that's why I can't buy it. So, oh, okay. Well, you know, maybe I have answers for some of them. Uh, some of them, if I don't have an answer to, I say, hey, if it's enough for you to walk away, I don't, you know, I don't want you to be involved, you know, in a deal that you're not comfortable with. Um, and typically when you say that to somebody, if they really truly are not feeling comfortable with it, they're like, okay, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not feeling comfortable with it, I'm out. But if they were just saying that to try to, you know, game the price, that's when they're usually like, no, it's okay. I, I, you know, I can get past that. Which that's that's what it ended up being with the two of the two of the complaints that he had with this one. That's amazing. So, was that the first time that somebody like challenged you and said, "Hey, this deal isn't all that great," or had that happened before? And you're like, yeah. "Oh, it, it happens. It happens on every single deal. It happens on every deal. There's always uh, there's always a challenge." Um, you know, that may or may not be able to, you know, to be overcome during the transaction, but um, sometimes it's worse than others, but I would say every transaction, the buyers are, would say something like that. I mean, you buy, you buy deals, what do you say when you're looking at them? It's falling apart. I don't know if it's <laughs> I close it, man. I, I just don't know, you know? <laughs> Exactly. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I need a concession, man. It's just, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, you get in the deal. You guys do pretty well in that deal. So why not just transition and start investing full time instead of, you know, helping trade deals on the broker side? Well, you know, that, that actually... That was the first deal we put together that way. And we kind of figured that with the, the clients that we deal with, that they wanted us to invest with them, um, you know, that we'd continue doing that and have them typically be a five-year deal. And at the end of five years, we'd be rolling out of that deal and buying another deal with whoever wanted to stay in. So it just seemed like it was a, it was a great way to kind of set up an annuity within the brokerage. Um, business and also be, uh, you know, on the ownership side with a small piece. I mean, and, and then 
we never uh, we never wanted to compete with with the clients that we sell deals to and for. So it just seemed like that you know there are enough deals to go around and there are enough clients that are interested in in having um, you know my partners and I participate with them. Sometimes they need it, sometimes they don't need it, sometimes they like hearing, you know, I'm with you on the deal. I'll invest with you if you, if you need me to do that. Um, and it just seems like once you do that, they, they feel that you actually, you know, believe in it. It's not just a sale. So, you know, why, the question though was, why didn't I just transition into ownership 100% and get out of brokerage? That's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of brokers want to do that. I think it's, uh, it, it might be the end game. I know, I know for me when I got into it in 2001, so 19 years ago, I mean, my, my goal was just to do this, to learn the markets and learn the areas uh, and what better way to do that than to be tracking every single deal and putting it all into a CRM and knowing you know, the thing that I like about the brokerage aspect is you see, you know, tens of hundreds of different groups and how they analyze a deal and how they add value to a project and how they, you know, can reposition uh, an asset. Um, so it's been really, you know, I, I've just enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the, you know, you know, bringing the two people together, the buyer and the seller and, and, and creating a deal. So it's fun. And I mean, it pays well too, without question. So like, what do you focus on and what type of transactions are you helping people complete these days? Uh, well, I focus on both market rate and affordable assets. And on the affordable side, we sell deals with uh, HAP contracts or project-based section eight. Uh, we also sell deals that have a, a low-income housing tax credit or a light tech component. Uh, where it's just income restricted. Um, and then we sell market rate. I mean, our sweet spot is right in between probably, you know, five and $25 million. Um, uh, even though I'm based here in Chicago, uh, a lot of the, the properties that we work are in secondary and tertiary markets, an hour, hour to three hours outside of Chicago. So, if somebody's coming in and they want you to take them seriously, right? Because a lot of people are looking for deals and they always talk about cultivating broker relationships. Sure. What makes you, I guess, put people in one pile versus the other? Well, I think so, something that will, would legitimize a buyer obviously is going to be, um, you know, recent transactions that you've completed. Um, you know, oftentimes if, if we have an asset, uh, you know, for example, we just closed on a 216 unit uh, deal with a half contract where we brought in uh, 17 written offers. We had a number of groups get into the document vault and look over it. And we had 17 written offers of which we kind of narrowed them down to, um, you know, talking with the client, we narrowed them down to about 10 that we wanted to, to continue the conversation with. And then at that point, you know, so you're talking about, um, especially in an affordable deal, you're talking about uh, a, a deal life that can last 
you know, sometimes 18, 20 months. So if you make the wrong decision with a, with a buyer uh, from the brokerage angle on, on, you know, behalf of the owner, you could, you could tie up your deal, you know, three, four, five months into the transaction and they could blow out uh, maybe because they didn't have the, the funds or they didn't have the wherewithal to do it. So if you lose five months, especially, you know, let's, let's say you started marketing a deal last year at this time. And if you lost five months and then you came into 2020 and then you were in pandemic season, uh, what would happen if you didn't close that deal in January? Um, you know, what we really do with that point, once we get it down to 10 or so, or, you know, whatever, whoever we think is a viable option to purchase the, the asset, we ask them to submit a resume. And that resume includes, uh, you know, the most, typically what we ask for is the three most recent deals you've closed. Um, and if somebody gives us a sheet that has one that they closed, you know, 15 years ago is most recent, you know, that, you know, maybe they're not uh, as active or as aggressive as they, you know, they need to be. If they show us a sheet where they, they own one six flat and they're trying to buy a 216 unit building, you know, they might not have the wherewithal, um, you know, to take down that deal as well. Um, and even if they do have three or four or five or 10 transactions in the last, you know, two, three years, we go the next step, um, you know, and we talk to, you know, if it's really getting close, maybe it's down to, you know, two or three groups, we might take the references um, or the owners of the, you know, the previous owners of the last, you know, two deals that they purchased um, and ask them for the reference to talk to that owner. Um, because if something happened in the 11th hour and a buyer kind of pinned a seller up against the wall and knew that they had to close and they were committed and tried to retrade them at the last second, they're usually not quiet about it. If you call them up after the deal, say, Hey, how was your, uh, how was your experience with this buyer? They usually will unleash if they had a bad experience. So we kind of vet the groups when it gets down to a, a small handful that way. Um, just so we know that we're not getting, uh, getting tied up with a group that's going to kind of jerk the seller around. So I guess it would just be a resume. It would be a recent transaction history, uh, both of the, the current buyer and or their partners. So that, that really, I think that tells volumes. What's up guys, it's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know, we launched Myers Methods in the fall of 2019 with the ambition to inspire a new breed of multifamily investor. If you are interested in getting into multifamily or scaling your current business, hop over to our website at MyersMethods.com to grab your free four-step guide on how to get the ball rolling in multifamily. Now let's get back to the episode. So what happens when a syndication group comes in or a new person fresh out of syndication training comes in and they're saying they're using other people's experience or resumes? Like how how does that play and what can they do to be more credible? Because I, I think that's one of the things a lot of people struggle with. On the syndication side, um, it's a good question. I mean, I, I guess... I guess it would all determine who the key principals are that are signing the, the, the loan and um, what kind of depth they have behind it. And it'd be, it'd be nice to vet that out. 
So at the end of the day, you got to get to a person who has a balance sheet and some experience for the deal really to get traction. Yeah. I mean, if you put up a million dollar hard earnest money, I don't really care too much about your, uh, you know, who's backing you, but that's typically not going to happen, especially with a syndicated deal. Okay. Okay. So, but, yeah, but I mean, a, a strong earnest money, a strong EM is, you know, might cause you to look past a few other shortcomings of a buyer. Okay. From a seller's perspective, typically, um, it, it all depends. It depends on the situation. Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Even, even though, I mean, we've seen in 2016 is really when we started seeing a lot of it. 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, these huge day one hard earnest money deposits, um, you know, just to try to blow people out of the water uh, to get the deal done. I, you know, we're talking about hotter transactions that, you know, maybe the class A or the, the higher class B properties, well located. We saw a lot of that. Um, but even, you know, I've noticed, uh, even if that happens and you have hard earnest money day one, if something blows up within the deal, it, it, it still is, unless the money was already released in your bank account, which we've had transactions go that way where the, the money is released upon uh, a certain deadline, it's very difficult to get that money out of escrow if there's a dispute that comes up. So just a little note. Okay. And so you, you vet people out, right? And you go through this process. Have you ever gotten to the finish line? It's like, uh-oh, we made the wrong choice on who we should award this deal to. I mean, has, has anybody ever retraded after we selected them? Retrade or this just wasn't the person who we thought was buying a deal isn't actually people buying a deal, right? Like it's. Hmm. Um, I can't think of a deal that we had listed that we went through that kind of a vetting process. I'm trying to think hard now. Um, I mean, I, I can think of a time that that's happened in my career with, with uh, off-market deals. Um, but I, I don't, we haven't had that problem with, with a deal that we, um, that we marketed and, and ran that vetting process. But yeah, we have, we have put buyer and seller together in an off-market transaction. And uh, you know, maybe it was with a seller that said, you know, we'll never list our deal with anybody, but go ahead and bring us an offer. Uh -huh. um, you know, and those are interesting transactions. We've sold a number of deals that way. It's, I don't think it's the preferred way to do it for, for anybody involved. I mean, oftentimes, uh, you know, well, in some cases a buyer could pick up a better deal. Maybe it's kind of, that's kind of the perception out there. If it's an off market deal, you probably, you know, you're not getting into the, the, the competitive bidding process. It's going to be a better deal. I've seen sometimes when uh, groups think that they're getting it off market end up paying significantly more than if it was a marketed deal. Um, but anyway, I'm, I digress. Uh, that's probably the only time that I ever came up with the, um, 
a situation where the buyer did not perform once we had it, you know, either A under contract or we're negotiating a contract at that point. It was probably an off-market deal. I'm so glad you said that because everybody says, I'm looking for an off-market deal. But that doesn't mean that you're getting a break on the price. It's probably more because nobody else has seen it. I've seen people overpay significantly thinking they're the only ones. And look, an off-market deal um, still doesn't mean that it's not being shopped by multiple brokers. You know? I mean, you and I found that out with, uh, you know, a, a deal that we sent one guy. He said, oh, I got this from like five other brokers. Like oh okay. In fact, it just happened today. I was kicking around um, a, a pretty decent sized complex uh, here in Chicago, and I knew I thought I knew the perfect buyer for it. I, I just talked. I had a conversation with him today, and he said, uh, "Oh, you know what? We've seen this probably four times over the last five years from different people." And I was like, "Oh okay." Um, but it, it's interesting because sometimes a seller will say. You know, I'm thinking about uh, maybe selling this deal. They'll call up, and you know, I, I specifically remember a guy that that called me in Chicago and said, "I'm kicking around the idea of selling this deal." And I, you know, I, I had my my database open. I pulled up his property, and in my database, so I track every single um, property in existence uh, in the markets that I work. Typically. Uh, we don't go below 50 units, so 50 units and above. Uh, so we have every deal, pictures of the deal, who the owner is, what the loan is uh, on the property. Uh, if any other broker ever had it on the market and we found that OM or it was sent to us by another, you know, somebody else, we downloaded that in. So I remember I pulled up this uh, gentleman's property while he's telling me he's thinking about it. And I saw that there were three other packages of brokers that we had that he had it on the market uh, with them. And uh, I said, oh, what happened when uh, ABC had it in 2009? What kind of offers did they bring you? And he was kind of quiet. And I was like, well, and then didn't you have it back on the market in, you know, 2012 with, you know, XYZ brokerage? And, you know, by the time I'm on the third one, you know, he's like, okay, yeah. So I tested the waters a couple of times, but. I'm still interested in selling. And you can, actually, you can, you kind of know at that point that if somebody's had it and if we have a history in our database that it's been on the market for three years, that they most likely are not a motivated seller. So it's good to have the histories of, of, of all the deals on there as well. And specifically the mortgages. I mean, we've, we've had groups tell us they want to sell their properties. They've given us a, a trailing 12, uh, a rent roll, all of their CapEx itemized down to, you know, each condenser unit. And we're underwriting the deal and doing all the, I mean, early on, we were underwriting this, this particular transaction and getting to a number and we're, we're capping it out at the, you know, the applicable cap rate for the, uh, for the market. And we're getting back to the owner and say, yeah, this, I, I think this is the value. And then he's like, you know, I didn't tell you, I, I refinanced it, um, uh, you know, last year and I have a huge prepayment penalty on my, <laughs> on this mortgage. So that's another thing by tracking the mortgages and knowing, uh, you know, you can run through a hundred properties pretty quickly 
um, in our database and say, you know, give me every property in this particular market that, um, you know, has a mortgage that's coming due in the next two years. So that way you're kind of looking at potential opportunities that can be, you know, you can put new debt on those deals. If you, you know, let's say you have a, a couple properties in the database that they just put on, you know, brand new CMBS financing. Um, you're not selling that deal for 10 years with the yield maintenance. So knowing that stuff going into it can save you a heck of a lot of time underwriting a deal and seeing if it works and then putting in your, your uh, you know, financing uh, information where you think you can finance the deal and then only to find out that you have to assume this note um, or, you, you know, it can't be prepaid. So. Yeah, those prepayment penalties usually kill the deal because the seller wants the buyer to pay for them and that doesn't usually happen very often. That's right. So what words of wisdom? Well, no, I got one more question before (laughs) that one. (laughs) So what do you see people do that destroys the value of their deal? Like when they're trying to go to market? Like they think they're being smart by saving pennies, but they're losing real dollars on the valuation. Well, I guess it depends on what kind of property it is, what kind of market you're in. Um, I remember one of the things that, you know, when I first started in the business, uh, 2001, 2002, every transaction I closed until about 2007 was to a condo converted. So if, um, if an apartment owner had a deal that he's put all new kitchens, all new baths and plumbing and fixtures, or not plumbing, but fixtures, apartment grade, uh, and it was a condo conversion market, which I don't, I don't see happening for a while, but just for example, um, those, those groups always were, were touting, hey, look, I just put in, you know, new Formica countertops, and I just did... Uh, you know, put in these these hollow core doors. Um, the condo converters are going in saying, mm, oh, and new kitchens and everything. Uh, they were saying, we're going to rip all that stuff out anyway. So you just spent anything you spent to do apartment quality, uh, we're going to rip it out and do condo quality. Um, you know, that was one thing that kind of screwed up a lot of deals in the condo con- uh, conversion phase. One thing back to the financing that I've seen, I've seen groups put new debt on a deal and only take out 50 or 60% LTV. Uh, even if it's, you know, sometimes it's a, a HUD, a 223F loan where they're saying, look, I got it for 30 years fixed at 2.9%. A, a new buyer is gonna love this. They're saying, well, yeah, you only put 50% LTV on it, so now, um, or even if they put 80% uh, or, or 85 or 90% LTV a couple years ago, and now they're expecting a price that's so much higher than what the, the assumed note is, um, you know, we've kind of seen that, that kind of mess up some deals or mess up the number that they're expecting to get in the back end. Um, let me think of some other things. You know, those are the two that pop into my head right away. 
of things that they've done. Perfect. So don't refi if you're getting ready to sell. <laughs> not unless you think you not unless you're going to put on as you know more debt than anybody is ever going to want to assume. Um, or ninety percent. You know, if you can get a great loan, I mean, sometimes uh, somebody can get a fantastic loan, but yeah, I, w I wouldn't do that prior to selling. Uh, any kind of a, a refi with an onerous prepay or a, a timeline long enough, uh, a long lockout. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so the final question that I, I always end the podcast with is what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Well, um, you know, one of the things that, that I think if you're looking to, to purchase assets or multifamily assets, I say you have to look at 50 deals, a hundred deals, you know, per one that you buy. Um, you know, whether that be starting to, to look at them online, underwriting them, go to the property, you know, not necessarily get set up showings for every one of them, um, but really touch and feel a number of deals, underwrite them, see where, you know, the first few deals that you look at where they close, um, you know, cause it's always interesting to me, uh, whenever we close it, whenever we close a deal, how, and then put out the closing, you know, announcement, you know, happy to, to announce that we just closed this transaction. How many of the buyers that didn't submit come back to us and said, man, I would have bought it at that price. It's like, well, you, you didn't, you didn't even put in an offer. Um, so but you have to look at a, enough deals to understand the market. You know, because there are so many different nuances, uh, you know, like North Carolina, right? There's the, the, the pipe issues. Uh, I forget what it was called. We haven't closed the deal in North Carolina in a while. But what, what's the polybutyl or whatever? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's things like that where if you're coming in from out of town, you don't know to, to look for that or ask that question, uh, you know, in the areas where this, this affects the properties you know, you have a problem. So you have to do your homework. You have to talk to as many people. You have to look at a lot of deals. It's, it, to me, it's best to, to pick an area, uh, focus on that area, see what everything is selling for, um, you know, see what the rents are so you know exactly when, you know, when a deal is right uh, for you to invest in. Yeah. I, I remember reaching out and us chatting about a deal I was looking at and income-wise, it made a ton of sense. Yeah. For unit wise, it made zero sense. And well, I don't know which one controls, but I think if you have stuff that doesn't align, you kind of wait and try to figure out well, which one is or what it will revert to. So certainly appreciate that little nugget too. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's why I, I think the best advice is to have sanity checks and have four or five sanity checks when you look at a deal. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can have your cap rate as one sanity check. I hate cap rates because um, I can, you know, I can make any cap rate work on a deal if I pull out expenses or add income. Um, so cap rates to me are totally arbitrary, but they're a sanity check. You're gonna, you know, because if you're looking at a deal and, uh, you know, it's penciling out for you and it's, it ends up being a three cap, at the price they're asking, that's like, it's an alarm bell that goes off. You're like, okay, wait a minute. I'm, I'm either, I'm either uh, 
you know, not putting enough income in, or I'm putting, you know, sometimes when you get the P&Ls, you have a lot of the uh, interest and finance charges. Maybe you didn't back those out. So that's the first sanity check. I mean, price per door in a market, like you said, is another sanity check. If you take, give me the last 12 deals that have closed just like this in the market, and, you know, most of them are, you know, in the 80s or 90s, and you're, you're trying to take a deal down for 160000 a unit, and it's the same build as the other ones that closed in the 80s or 90s, that's another alarm bell. Uh, cash on cash return uh, is a sanity check. Um, the expense ratios is a big sanity check, too. If you run down and you say, if you know in your market that your expenses are running at about 4,500, 42 to 4,500 a unit, and you're coming up with your underwriting from the numbers you're receiving from the broker or the owner, that it's like 2,600 a unit, you're missing some expenses. So that's a sanity check there. And then, you know, I think we were talking about this, um, you know, multifamily isn't rocket science, which is, which is why I'm in it. Um, but I, there are very few deals that, you know, maybe market rate deals built up until 2000 that the expense ratio don't shake out somewhere between 46 and 54% of the income. Uh, you know, and when you're looking at deals where it's shaking out 30% of the income, you're missing some expenses. Maybe you didn't put, you know, put in the right real estate tax number uh, upon sale. And that's another thing that I've seen. Um, <laughs> don't mean to keep going on, but as we're talking about it, the real estate taxes in every state, they're different. And they're, they, they're, they're treated differently upon sale. You know, some state or some municipalities chase sales and adjust your real estate taxes according to the purchase price. Um, you know, others do it based on income. So that's a key, uh, a key issue. I mean, I had, I had a client complain to me that they bought a deal where their taxes, the year after they bought it, went up 175%. You know, saying, well, first of all, did you allocate any personal property to the, yeah, yeah. Did you allocate any personal property uh, to the contract? So you can kind of reduce that that hit. Um, no, they didn't. It was 100% going to the, to the property. And two, they just, they made their offer based on uh, the taxes and arrears. Because uh, in many of the markets I deal with, the taxes are in arrears. So you uh, are making an offer on old tax information. So that's key. So one of the things, if you're in a new market, or even if you're in a market that you're working, you need to get friendly with a really good real estate tax attorney that you can send them over the OM or send them over the property and say, what do you think if I pay $7.5 million for this multifamily asset, what do you think my taxes are going to be? And usually they'll, they'll give you quick back of the napkin ways to figure out that number because that's huge uh, in the underwriting of these assets. Yeah, I mean, taxes can be 10% of income, if not more, depending on the market. So, I mean, I've seen them 18 to 20% in our markets. Oh. And if they're 10%, there's a sanity check. <laughs> there's a sanity check for us. If they're only, you know, it's single digits, which we've seen. Because if you have an old, uh, an old owner that, you know, isn't maximizing the rents or reporting the rents, depending on what, the, what they do, um, 
you know, you could be buying a deal that, again, you know, I've, I've seen them go up 100, 175% from where they were when you, when you bought the deal. Wow, Reed, this has been awesome, man. I, I appreciate you sharing all of these nuggets because I tell you, it's really easy to think you have a great deal and all you have is a lead. <laughs> no. no, I mean, every deal looks great the, the first two seconds you're looking at it. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Well, we'll wrap it up here, man. We'll talk soon, man. Thanks again. All right, you got it. Appreciate you. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. And share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.